and he must have a firm grasp of the unchanging message so that he can be counted on both for giving encouragement in sound doctrine and for refuting those who argue against it. WSFI 88.5 FM presents Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Well, hello and welcome to this live edition of Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. For those of you who are not familiar with Kyle Clement, loyal to the Magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church, Clement has been involved in the curriculum, consultation, and formation of priests and laity relating to Catholic liberation and exorcism for over 15 years. A member of the Religious Association Societas Matris Dolorissime, together with Father Chad Ripperger, he established the Liber Christo movement, which provides instruction, evaluation, case investigation, consultation, and ongoing formation for bishops, exorcists, dioceses, and religious institutes in the United States and abroad, including the establishment of materials and protocols for many dioceses. Kyle, welcome to the show. Good morning, Angela. I'm glad to be here with you. A wonderful voice from the past, although we haven't had a show with you in a few months. When the subject came up about the exorcists who are calling for a day of reparation on December 6th, the first person that came to everyone's mind here at WSFI Radio to find out what that was all about was you, Kyle. So thanks for taking the time from your schedule to join us today and to clarify why a day of reparation is being called by the exorcists and why should we participate. To begin with, Kyle, why don't you lead us in a prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God Almighty, ancient of days, you who become manifest visibly and physically in the Christ among us and perpetuate your presence through the charity of the Holy Spirit. May we always be mindful of your triune presence with us, in us, and among us. May you keep our conscience clear our moral compass accurate and give us the strength to speak truth to power. This is our prayer. Bless us, the laity, as we go about preserving this faith and praying for our clergy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 So, Kyle, why are four exorcists calling for a day of reparation on December 6th? I think that to look at this in three three levels, basically, and what's being seen is that in the field, what's happening is the power and authority structure is becoming inconsistent. When you've got one diocese right next to another diocese that is teaching vastly different things, that is em- emphasizing different things, we're in a howling wasteland of relativism and modernism that is devoid of the landmarks of true doctrine, of faith, of, of sensum fidei. Those landmarks are gone. And so what we have to do is preserve the faith. We have to become the remnant and preserve the faith because the malformed priests, the seminarians who went through in a period of, of um, disillusion and a period of faulty theology have now been elevated to the episcopate. So we now have bishops and cardinals among us who do not know the faith, or if they do, even more egregious, fail to defend it. And so I think that the, the exorcists that are calling for this reparation 
it is always the laity that will do the reparation. It will all, it will always be the lay people who will preserve the faith, who will do reparation, who will do prayer and fasting mainly, and it, historically this has happened time after time after time again, to reform a clergy and a hierarchy that has gone astray. And so ultimately, at some point, it's not that the sheep are, are, are shepherding the shepherds, and it's not it at all. It's that we suffer at their hands, and so we have to offer our suffering, our consternation, our anxiety, all of that desire to be free, uh, we have to offer that for the very clergy that are imposing and and are largely through negligence or uh, pursuing an effeminate response or a soft response, their compassion and their interest in us has been perverted and twisted by the adversary. And so this act of reparation on the 6th of December is called for for clarity. Ultimately, that's what the exorcist does in something like this. These imprecatory prayers by the exorcist and then the deprecatory prayers by the laity, our fasting, our genuine desire to do reparation, for to suffer for those who will not or cannot. And in this case, it's the clergy, it's the church herself. And so this is what purification of the church looks like, thanks be to God. God in all his mercy and wisdom and, and providence has deigned that we live now and in these times. And so it's a great time to be alive. It's an amazing time to pursue sainthood and to do it for love of the church, to do it for love of Christ, to do it for love of a pure clergy and a pure hierarchy, to return to a time when the faith was vibrant and it only happens through these types of adversity. So that's the first layer of reparation. Second layer of reparation, if you're doing these prayers and you're doing this fasting, you're doing this, this work, don't be concerned with the result because the result in the pattern in the cycle is deeper than we may be able to intuit. And it may very well get worse before it gets better. But if you have a desire to purify the church, then you must put it into some kind of formulate response, such as this exercise, such as this that is called for by the exorcist. And the third one is the realization. I think this one is, is key for us as laity. Don't complain about the hierarchy. Don't complain about the clergy. Do something about it. Your children are watching. Your grandchildren are watching. Those who have left the faith because they're disgusted, those who don't have the strength to stay and fight, they're watching. And they're watching to see what you're going to do. And you do no good for their soul by talking badly about the clergy or the hierarchy. Simply do something. Fast. Pray. Follow this formulate response. I will tell you that a formulate response is very, very significant. It's extremely significant. It may be unseen. It may be unheralded. It may be difficult. All the more reason to do it. It is the just response. Later on, we're going to go into more into justice. But that's the riff, if you will, or the the discourse on the day of reparation that these exorcists have called for on December 6th. Kyle, was and, there a trigger event that led them to act at this point in time versus a different point in time? No, I think the trigger events you're looking at, uh, think church rhythm, think uh, ecclesial rhythm is not usually predicated by a single event. It's a totality. 
for instance, our Lord, uh, God Almighty, sends his son in the fullness of time. So what happens is evil militates to absurdity. And so then we see a series of actions and a series of events, and it's the totality of these events that make the laity say, basta, stop, no more. Well, give an example, Kyle. Maybe put some flesh on the bone here. Okay, the flesh on the bone is that um, we've got idols. Um, first of all, we had a statue, a lot of, you know, it, pre, it goes under the radar. We had a statue of Martin Luther show up in the Vatican a couple of years ago. Excuse me? This guy, it did more to destroy the fabric of the faith than anybody. It was not a reformation, it was a deformation. The idea that we're going to celebrate that, basta, no more. Right is not negotiable. Wrong is never acceptable. We didn't say anything when Martin Luther appears in the, in the Vatican and is celebrated. We didn't say anything. There was a liturgy celebrated with Protestants, with apostate people, and our Holy Father. We didn't say anything. We didn't say anything when the Aztec dancers began dancing at the Guadalupanas. We didn't say anything when we started assaging Native American ceremonies in the mass. We didn't say anything until Pachamama shows up carried in by bishops. And then finally, the laity, the moribund laity, awakes and says, no more. This is absurd. But you see that it follows a trail. The demon militates to absurdity until laity, until somebody steps up in a Maccabean fashion and says no more. And Kyle, and- what's the what's the issue from your perspective? You're you've been working in um, demonology for for many many years. What does it boil down to? What's wrong with the bishops carrying? the Pachamama statue in the church. They look at it, it we're just offering respect for another person's culture. What's wrong with us carrying this in at a mass? Okay, a couple of three things. Number one is I do not like the term demonology. I think this places the focus in the wrong place. I've spent a, a lot of time in the study of angels. We encounter fallen angels, those who were created good and turned away from God. How does the diabolical work is it looks for the opportunity to pervert our fallen nature or an element in our nature. And so what happens is quite often is the concept of enculturation is exactly backwards. For centuries up until the 60s, and let's just, you know, politic, everybody is done with political correctness done. And so there'll be no political correctness from me. I will not kowtow to that. I'm going to call a spade a spade. I'm going to call it what it is, what it is. Bottom line is enculturation is backwards in our church, especially in the American church. One of the things that the adversary did very, very subtly through Freemasonry was encourage the ethnic parishes. And so what happened is we had, and you got it in Chicago in the in spades, you got a Polish church around the corner, you got a German church around the corner, you got an Italian church around the corner, you got an Irish church, all Catholic. We're Catholic. We are Catholic. Any of this other ethnicity stuff, that has to disappear. That absolutely has to disappear. For instance, Kateri Tekawitha is a saint because she placed being a Catholic above being a Native American or being an Indian. She, she placed it above that. 
that's the call. And so this idea of respect for something that does not reserve, deserve respect, the idea of enculturation, and again, let's call a spade a spade, missionary orders that started to do in reverse enculturation or bring these elements into the mass, we first start to see the degradation. And so what it happens is at the heart of this, it takes a compassion and a desire to be popular on the part of the effeminate priest in the effeminate order, which wants to take the easy route instead of preaching the truth. You got to realize that the mass that missionized Mexico was a Tridentine mass with no elements of enculturation of the culture into the mass. Enculturation means we take our Catholic faith into the culture and change the culture. That's what it means. That's what it has always meant. And so some politically motivated prelate who decides to redefine it here very late in the history of the church, we're not going to stand for it as laity. No, we're not. Take these elements out of our liturgy. It's our liturgy. It's the prayers of the people. The Holy Mass is something that we perpetuate. Take these elements out. Demand it. We will not have it. Anything that is inconsistent. And with regard to the ridiculous statement that the commandments are somehow not still in, in effect, did not our Lord Jesus himself say, not a word of the law passes away, I came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it? I'll quote our Lord correctly and contextually over St. Paul, isolated and to further a purpose. That's a Protestant methodology, is to take one statement from St. Paul and apply it to, to, to buttress your argument, rather than yield to centuries of, of tradition and what the faith is. Very straightforward. Right is not negotiable. Wrong is never acceptable, regardless of whose mouth it comes out of. Kyle, the Pachamama statue that the bishops carried in, to some who look at it, it's a wooden carving that shows respect for a certain culture and their art. How do you look at it? I'll quote the song, the gods of the Gentiles are demons. End of story. If it's not consistent with the Catholic faith, if it is not an element of the Catholic faith, if it harkens back to a worship of either an element or a false deity, it has no place in the church. It has no place in our faith practice. And so it's a lot easier for these bishops to carry it into the church and say, we're going to incorporate it into our faith rather than to stand out there and say, this can't come in. This is why the true image of motherhood, the true image is the Blessed Mother. And so it's a lot easier for the bishops to try to be popular and to do this type of thing than it is to proclaim the gospel and proclaim the truth. And ultimately, that's where the rubber meets the road on this, is the effeminate clergy want to be popular rather than have a thirst for souls and a willingness to die like our Lord Jesus Christ for that purpose. If this is an act of, I'm sorry, Kyle, you had mentioned what was the term that you used for the statue? It's a false, did you say it's a false god? or a pagan Correct. god okay what has to happen now to rectify that wrong of bringing a false god or a pagan god into a catholic mass by successes of peter what has to happen to satisfy it i, I think that you look at justice you look at justice in the light of the understanding of justice and the intertwining of justice and mercy. And so what we have modernly is we have mercy without justice. And so let me read a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas, 
who incidentally is a doctor of the church. And so to discount St. Thomas, even by another order who has no doctors. Um, so, I mean, credibility is credibility. This is a doctor of the church who was taught by a doctor of the church. St. Albert the Great, the Great, was a doctor. And his one of his principal pupils was St. Thomas, who is a doctor of the church. And so St. Thomas has got something at the beginning of his name and at the end of his name. If you want a credible source, look for the initials in front, ST, and then look for especially the acclamation doctor of the church. And so, yeah, you can't put him in a quote next to someone who's not a doctor of the church. His statements carry, especially his theological statements, carry more weight. That's why the designation, it's not an honorary designation. It is he wrote and said things that healed the church, that addressed the church, that addresses the church's problems. Quite simply, St. Francis is no doctor. St. Thomas is a doctor. Deal with it. He's going to be the definitive <laughs> word here. Mercy is connected with justice. Mercy does not destroy justice, but it is a certain kind of fulfillment of justice. Mercy without justice is the mother of disillusion. That's where we are right now. This is where we are. Mercy without justice is the mother of disillusion. Justice without mercy is cruelty. Now here's where they're linked. Mercy moves us to do what we can do to help the other. To help the other means eternal salvation, not temporal comfort. Mercy seeks to remedy the weakness of others and where sin is involved, to lead others to recognize their need for repentance and turning away from wrongdoing. Now here's the key quote, here's what's missing. Pardon without repentance negates justice. So where does all justice flow? It is to give each his due and the first to give due or to what is owed him is God Almighty himself, God the Father, God the Creator. Everything has to be oriented to God the Creator, God the Father in the primacy. He who offered his only son for us. That's what we, we're missing. And so we've got to get back to strict Catholicism. That's where the firm ground is and is the understanding that everything flows through this. And justice is owed first and foremost to God the Father. Sin is an offense against that. So your question, what must be done to address this? Very simple. It is the bishops to give a public mea culpa, a repentance and to say, we were wrong. This is, and it won't happen again. We, your shepherds, made a mistake in our desire to be liked by you, or words to that effect. We neglected the care of your souls. This is not new. We've been here before. The church has been here countless times with various heresies and practices. But ultimately what happens is effeminacy or the soft response fosters in the hierarchy and in the clergy a political disposition. What do I mean by political? The desire to do two things. One, to be liked, to be loved. And so often there is a false humility that precedes a inconsistent uh, policies. And these inconsistent policies are meant to throw bones to each individual constituency, the same way a politician does. And so you look for those hallmarks. And then the third one, 
and this one is the one that is is key is when you've got a prelate when you've got a uh, a bishop when you've got a priest even on a parish level who is wanting to bring temporal comfort to bring temporal comfort at the exclusion of salvation this is suspect this this soul this this clerical soul is in a state of peril because he's no longer placing the emphasis on eternal salvation he's placing the emphasis on temporal comfort very simply to the usccb bishops go home get among your sheep feed your sheep stop the synoids stop the conferences stop all this stuff until you get your house in order and give up on the politics the USCCB is, should not be a political body. Bishops should not be politically inclined. So all the offices that you have, lay them down. Chief of Immigration, give me a break. Lay this down. What are you doing for the souls? What are you doing the very people that you're asking to pay your airfare, that you're asking to pay your hotel, that you're asking to pay this stuff? Because I tell you, you guys have, have really kicked a sleeping giant here, and the laity are about done with you. So no more airfare, no more tickets, no more synoids. Go be shepherds. That's what you're supposed to be. Kyle, you mentioned earlier in the show and again now about diocese, where you could be in one diocese and something's permissible, and you could be in an adjacent diocese or a different country and it's verboten. Give us some examples of some of those things that are emerging right now in the Catholic Church. Well, I'll t- you know, it, just a, a, a real classic example is the, and I'm not going to use the word liberal and conservative because it's not that. And so I'm going to use orthodox and unorthodox to some extent, but that's got a bad connotation. So I'm going to say Catholic and non-Catholic because very frankly, I'm not a rad trad. I'm not, I, I go to both masses. I go, that's beside the point. So we're not going to argue my credibility. I'm a sinner. That's my only credential. And so if you want to, any of you clerics out there, any of you prelates, any of you bishops, if you want to sell my character, I'm an open target. I'm a sinner. I got zero zip cred other than the truth that's coming through this program, through Libra Cristo, and the results of liberation that Father Ripperger is putting up. If you want to hear the real deal, listen to Father Ripperger on LibraCristo.org or on any of his YouTube stuff. This is what we've lost. And I'll give you an example. I'll get back to your answer in just a second, Angela, but I'll give you an example. We had a very good inquiry from a woman who said, there is a modern author who has taken quite a bit of liberty with uh, St. John Paul the Great's homilies on the theology of the body and took it places where arguably the saint had no intention for it to go. And so the interpretation of it is off the rails with regard to moral theology. And her question was, how do we refute this? We know it's wrong. So listen to what's happening. Her Catholic conscience is pricked. She knows it's unclean, but she doesn't know how it's unclean. So in a classic case where we give up the high ground, she's asking the society to give her all the texts that support moral theology prior to Vatican II. Well, they're rife. It's every single textbook on moral theology prior to Vatican II. That's where the teaching is. That's where the teaching has always been that talks about the power and authority structure of the natural law and how it flows, how grace flows, the difference between actual and sanctifying grace, 
we've given all that over to the Protestants, and now we find ourselves engaged in an apologetic nightmare. And we as Catholics are atop the rampart of an impregnable castle. We're fully armored. We have all the weapons. A naked man appears on the ground down below and says, come out and fight me and take off all your armor. And we say, okay, that's apologetics. The response is, you come assail this castle. This is a true faith. You tell me why you're in protest. You tell me why you're apostate. You justify your departure based upon the 20 centuries of doctrine and dogma and teaching and moral theology that we stand on as our faith. Defend your apostasy. Don't ask me to defend the the absolute truth of the faith. So that having been said, we have to get this disposition. And so that any element that comes in, we must, we're constantly being asked, well, show me where it says I can't do that. This is the second precept that I really want to get out there, or concept that I want to get out there, and that is this. Prior to 1960, there was an understanding that if it was not proscribed, it was prohibited, meaning in liturgical manuals, even in legislation, even in instruction that was written in the secular world, if it is not proscribed, it is prohibited. Meaning, if it doesn't say do it, don't do it. Example, <laughs> if it doesn't say, if it doesn't say hold hands during the Our Father, don't do it. If it doesn't say raise your hands like the priest when you're praying the Our Father, don't do it. If it doesn't say insert liturgical abuse here. If it doesn't say stand at the Agnus Day, it says kneel. So you should kneel. And the fact that a prelate thinks he can make you stand, no. That's beyond his authority. To understand the postures and practices in the liturgy, it's where the first battle is. We've got to take back the liturgy. To, to illustrate the point, show me where it says I can't do this. Show me where it says I can't ride my Harley down the aisle to communion. Doesn't say anything about that, so I must be able to do it. The absurdity illustrates the point. And so back to your point, Angela, that you were speaking about, it is the laity saying, no, we won't go here. We, we simply will not go here. We'll stop at the border of this wasteland of relativism, modernism, of this self-serving area. We desire eternal salvation. We desire sainthood. We desire sanctity, not satisfaction, sanctity. So what opens us up to that is strict adherence to the liturgical norms and a return to the faith. And so to be able to identify the things that are not Catholic, each one of us has a built-in Catholic conscience, a BS meter, listen to it when it goes off, listen to it. The idea that we can still interpret the actions of churchmen in the best possible light, that has not served us well. It has not served us well. Call a spade a spade. When father's up there struggling around in a homily trying to tell you why you should enculturate, why you should extend communion to the divorced, why you should breach what you know to be true faith, why you it's okay to vote for a candidate who advocates murder or other activities, when he's up there struggling with that, just go to him quietly after mass and say, Father, I see you struggling. Return to your faith, pray, fast, go to adoration, and then let your heart be circumcised. Let your heart be rent. Let your heart be moved 
Father, I can tell you're struggling. I'll pray that you have the perseverance to yield to the gospel and to preach the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. Because when we go to the Father after the homily and say, nice homily or thank you for the homily, or if we remain silent, then he doesn't know how what he's feeding us is affecting his sheep. What these guys are feeding us, what many of them are feeding us, spiritual nutrition is making us sick. And don't go away. Don't go away. Stay there and tell them, you've led me to a range or to an area that is not good for me. And it is not only pricking my conscience, but it's causing crisis. And so I will pray in reparation for the errors. This is the way it gets fixed. This is the value of this December 6th day of reparation is simply to bring clarity to prick the conscience of the priest who many of them are being led into an area that they don't want to be led into. And they're being led there by the hierarchy who ultimately we have to convert. There has to be a prayer for their conversion, for their clarity, for a prick of their conscience. Remember that all of us are led to a point where we say, oh, no more. I'm not going to do that. And so when your conscience is pricked, you must act and don't go away. Don't slink away. Stay there and fight. Be the spiritual warrior fight for the faith, fight for the preservation of the faith. Kyle, getting back to the distinctions or differences between what's acceptable as Catholics, say, for example, in Germany versus in the Archdiocese of Chicago. That was one of the questions when I was reading some of the articles recently that supposedly the German bishops were saying, well, Rome does not have the right to dictate certain things. How does that whole thing come together? Actually, that's a false statement. As you as you say, it is is the way it was said, but it, it's it's a false statement. Mm-hmm. Rome has every bit of, of leeway to do that and should, but they have to do it according to the norms of Catholicism. I'll give you a classic example: is this understanding of ecumenicism. Prior to 1960, the ecumenicism meant that we had an obligation to go uh, and address these religions for the purpose of conversion. So there was a thirst for souls. After 1960, ecumenicism means, let's agree to disagree, let's, uh, we'll respect your quote religion, we'll do nothing to convert you. And this is is a a modern discourse, just like the one in the garden, where an an opinion, the serpents, is uh, opposite true teaching, true faith, is elevated to the same status because Eve entertains the conversation. You can't entertain the conversation. The idea that there is an Islamic outreach, there's a Muslim outreach, is it is outrageous. Why, Kyle? For, Why is it outrageous? We prayed for their conversion. We were concerned with their conversion, not with coexistence. Coexistence is uncharitable in as much as, where's the conversion? The idea that an ecumenical community can be led by a Catholic layman and have all kinds of Protestant members and never seek conversion for these people, it's egregious. It's, it's, it acts directly against charity. There is no thirst for souls. There is no need. There is no effort for conversion. We've removed from liturgical prayers the prayers for conversion of the Jewish people and of the Muslims. So to come to a true understanding of the faith. And so This idea is, and it's running out of steam, and it just doesn't work. It simply does not work. And so that's... And it's against Christ. Didn't Christ say, go teach the gospel to all nations? That was like his last, his last words were to teach the gospel. Not agree agree to disagree. 
Matthew 18, the Great Commission, yeah. go and convert, go teach, go preach the gospel. We're not doing that. What we're doing is set up, setting up political uh, entities on how we can all get along. That's it's a spiritual battle. And these when we bring these elements into our faith. And so that's the answer of your question. Anything that's incompatible with the faith, for instance, if I'm going to have dialogue with a faith and I'm using that in quotes with a religion or a cult, let's call it what it is. If I'm going to have dialogue with a cult that does not recognize Jesus Christ, how far is this dialogue going to go? If I'm not allowed to to mention the Blessed Mother, if I'm not allowed to speak the name of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as God himself, if I'm not allowed to do those things, then who's converting who? Who's converting who? I'm not behaving as a Catholic when I'm in the presence of this non-Catholic. That right there is the problem. Because when we do this, then the, whoever's in instigating this is leading us all into an apostate position, is leading us into a position that is against our Catholic faith and, and that abrades our Catholic sensibilities. We are Catholic, primarily. We are the conscience of the world. That's, that's what you've got to be, and the conscience of the world does not always speak in compassionate tones. Kyle, there's a whole trend I, I read recently about ecological sins and Mother Earth. I guess the concern is what's happening is our religion becoming kind of like this umbrella religion where the environment is raised. It's almost It almost reminds me of, you know, the old pagan gods or the old gods where they used to worship the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth. Is that somehow filtering in to our established church? I like the term filtering in. It's walking in bare-breasted with an escort of the divine. <laughs> and to call it what it is, it's just it's coming in the front door. It's not working its way in. You're looking at the advent or the, the beginning. Well, not the beginning, but you're looking at the fulfillment of one world religion. And make no mistake, make no mistake, you've got to track these things, especially the prelates who come in under society under very suspicious circumstances. You look at how they rise, you look at the orders, you look at the prevalence of homosexuality and effeminacy. You gotta look at it because these things are hand in hand. Let those chips fall what they, where they may. But if a prelate comes to power because of this cabal, because of this association with this deviant element, I don't care whether he's running a deanery or an institute within the church or an order. One of the first things that these individuals do is advocate the softer response, diminish the, the role of the devil, and then redirect. But it's always a redirection. It's always a redirection. So you've got to just simply tell the truth, shine the light where it shines. And make no mistake, we've got to address the religious orders because there's a systematic attack being made on the religious orders. And chief among them, the Jesuits. Stop and think about this. The Jesuits are in dissolution and disarray when you've got the superior general saying the devil doesn't exist, and you've got the Pope, who is a Jesuit, saying he does exist, and then you've got all different kinds of hierarchy within the Jesuits who are either A, promoting the traditional mass, or in other houses, in other areas, they are outlawing it. So you're seeing disillusion. 
Mercy without justice is the mother of disillusion, inconsistency. And I'm not picking on the Jesuits, it's just they're a prime example that anyone can see. They were once a very proud order, but they are no longer Ignatius, if nothing else, was consistent. I'm speaking about the Jesuits, not because they're the, the only ones in the prime example. You can make the same remark about the Franciscans. You can make the same remark about the Dominicans. Is There is great disparity within the order. There's no order within the order. But getting back to the world religion and the emphasis on the environment right now, can't have children because the environment, you know, it's almost the same arguments, but with the same conclusions with a, with a different argument. Can you sin against the earth? Can you sin against the environment or do you sin against God? All sins are against God. That's Catholicism, very simply. All sins are against God. So there may be a sin against stewardship, but understand something very, very simply. Stewardship flows out of God's first blessing. And, and here's the point that I'm trying to make about the homosexuality. This is precisely the point I'm trying to make. In Genesis 2, God blessed them saying, go forth and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so these are the first two configurations to God. This is his God's blessing. And this is where the demon attacks, God's blessing. And it is procreation and stewardship. And if you don't see that that's precisely where this modern attack is, it's where the attack has always been, but the demon has a learning curve and he learns what plays in our sensibilities. Look secularly where we've got more, we've got more sympathy and compassion for an abandoned puppy than we do an abandoned child. You will inflame all kinds of response if you kill a, 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 a pet. You will not inflame the same response if you abort a child. Stop and think about it. This is part of the disorder. And so that deviant mindset attacks the sanctity of the marriage bond by saying you can't be fruitful or you can't, that the marriage bond is somehow extended to people of the same sex. We need to take the language back. We need to take the use of the language back because then we can see clearly, clearly where these offenses are. And so stewardship is the second one. Fill the earth and subdue it, bringing it under your dominion. And so this dominion is the understanding that there has to be an, an interior movement. They're going at it from a punitive standpoint. You can't make it punitive. That's not justice. The same person who will say, let's extend communion to to the unmarried in an act of compassion wants to dissolve a corporation that does, makes an environmental breach. He wants to eliminate them, tax them, destroy them, but at the same time extend some type of mercy to the apostate soul. This We've got to look at this. Right is right, wrong is wrong. Right is not negotiable, wrong is never acceptable, and it is black and white. There is no gray area when you apply Catholicism. It erases gray, which is the, de the devil's favorite shade. It, his favorite color is gray, is this imposition of gray. So the idea that we've got prelates who are advocating an environmental response to the neglect of their souls, they're feeding their sheep trash, worrying about other sheep that are not theirs, this is indicative of the absent shepherd. This is indicative of St. August, Augustine had a whole diatribe on the, the shepherds who grow fat off of the sheep. 
We need to be reading this constantly. Priests need to be reading this constantly. Bishops need to know it by heart, and cardinals need to know it by heart. All of these discourses, they happen early in the fall in the divine office. The, all of those, you can find them there, you can find them in other places. But that's where we are, is we've got to call a spade a spade and take it back. And to be quite frank with you, there's a very, very valid argument that needs to be being taken up by the laity, especially by lay groups who are advocating for the militant preservation of the faith. And that's this argument. When a bishop acts politically, he is no longer acting as a bishop and is no longer a legitimate agent of the church. Therefore, his actions when he does this are his to answer for. The church does not need to pay for his mistakes. Listen carefully for what I'm saying. Because when he is moving clergy around, known pedophiles, when he's when he is protecting them, when he is obfuscating um, justice, Look at many of the dioceses that are involved and embroiled in this that are being gutted. This is a result of bishops and clerics who are acting outside the scope, the right scope of their office. And we, what we should do is step away and say, when you do these things, you are not church. This is not your agency. You are not acting as a true agent of the church. Therefore, these mistakes and their result is yours, not ours. It's yours because you're not acting as a bishop. You're not acting as a priest. If we would take this stance, then you're going to take all the steam out of SNAP. You're going to take all the steam out of a lot of these advocacies who are trying to dismantle and destroy the church based upon rogue agents. That's exactly what I'm saying. Rogue actors who are using the church as a screen, as a as a cover-up, as a protection, as a human shield, if you will, and as a deep pockets to pay for their mistakes, to cover their errors, to cover their criminal acts. And I think that when we start to look at it that way, you see it in a whole different light. Well, they're using the church as an agent for moral sin. It is the Trojan horse, isn't it? They're using the Catholic Church as an agent to promote mortal sin with no repercussions in this world, you know, and they're trying to change the repercussion in the next. Kyle, we're coming up to the top of the hour. You mentioned Libra Cristo. Uh, Before we close, tell us a little bit about what you're up to and how people can get more information. The website is LibraCristo.org. And so what we did is there's a very large data set that we deal with. Father Ripperger and I were instrumental in the establishment and were part of the initial faculty of the Pope Leo XIII Institute, which was begun to <clears throat> train exorcists there at Mundelein. And they've chose to go a different direction. They've chose to go a, a more ecumenical uh, direction with the AIE. And so um, if you'll remember, the AIE invited shaman, uh, witch doctors, witches, uh, even Satanists, to give presentations because it was, quote, we're all fighting the same evil. This is simply not correct, and it's intolerable. In the advocation of modern psychology, the weaknesses of modern psychology, the advocation of the advocation of the exec, uh, exclusive use of the new right in English, these things <clears throat> made it very easy to see that our paths were divergent. 
And so what we established was Liber Cristo, which is the Catholic response to liberation, the Catholic response to the deliverance ministry and area. And quite simply, the reason it is the Catholic response is because at the center of it is a return to the sacraments, a redefining of healing as reconciliation with God the Father. This methodology has been very, very effective. We're in 17, 18 dioceses in the United States. It's a comprehensive protocol on how to deal with extraordinary diabolical activity once the pastoral response is exhausted. And so it is a clear, not an alternative, it is the Catholic response. And it's a clear methodology proven over the centuries to achieve not only liberation, but sustainable reconciliation with God the Father, a return to the faith, and it addresses the spiritual situation to the primacy versus many of the modern methodologies which address the temporal uh, basis. And so I think that if you will go online, look at that, LibraCristo.org, there's a lot of free things you can download. There's a lot of free things you can listen to. Father Ripperger's got some passage, uh, some talks there. Go to Father Ripperger on, on uh, Census Fidelium. There's many of his videos that you can listen to. And it's not because it's him. He's simply one of the few voices that is articulating Catholic faith, the, the true faith, the whole faith, without the confusion of modernism and relativism. And it's not new to him. It's what has been said for centuries. It's what has been taught for centuries. It is what made the Catholic faith strong. And if you want to return to a, a time when our faith is strong and we made a difference in the world, rather than let the world make a difference in us, re-embrace these timeless truths, the sensum fide, the tradition, embrace these things because if you want a church that is vibrant then we must return to a time to the practices that made her vibrant because we are headed down the wrong path and it's becoming very clear that the societies the institutes and the church herself is in great division great turmoil and so we're at a point where it's up to the laity to preserve the faith to preserve it whole and entire not in pieces, not to do what's popular, not to do what's easy, not to do what is effeminate, not to do what is politically correct, but to do the hard things, say the hard truths, and have a thirst for souls. Kyle Clement, it's a pleasure to have you back at WSFI. Thank you so much. I know how precious your time is. Thank you for sharing that with our audience. You're listening to Kyle Clement. And Kyle, what's the website again? LiberCristo.org, L-I-B-E-R-C-H-R-I-S-T-O.org. God bless you, Kyle. God bless you. You have been listening to WSFI 88.5 FM, Reclamation Theology. A copy of this broadcast will be made available at WSFICatholicRadio.org.